Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The greatest thing to me that I love is uh, hearing the way that you honor the artists that you have on. Stories make the world go round. They capture our minds, pull at our hearts, and inspire change, growth, and development. It's just your genuine human appreciation on a deep, like, soul level for what artists do. This Your podcast is really dope. I'm your host, Cello, and welcome to Bedroom Beethoven's, the podcast where we discover some of the preeminent music producers and entertainers of our time, and I turn them into storytellers. What's up? This is J-Rock, and I'm right here. I'm chilling on the Bedroom Beethoven's podcast. That's what it is. Let's go. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 180 of the podcast. Follow me as we head up north to the steel city of Pittsburgh. My guest this week is... I'm E. Dan, the, the founder and owner of uh, ID Labs Recording Studio in Pittsburgh, PA. I mix, produce, and record, uh, most notably with Mac Miller and Wiz Khalifa, but lots of other people too. Without getting too melodramatic, it's an absolute honor that I get to talk to you, especially on Mac Miller's birthday. No, oh, thanks, man. Yeah, yeah, it sure is. Rest in peace to the homie. I sit down with the great and powerful E-Dan to discuss his upbringing, navigating through strict flow, day jobs at Olive Garden, finding success with Wiz and Mac, and all landing on current and future projects. And in 2023, there are no signs of slowing down. And I'm honored to bring forth this conversation as I hit a new set of tens, episode 180 of the Bedroom Beethoven's podcast. Before we jump into today's episode, thank you to everyone that listens, lets me know how much the podcast means to them, lets me know it should be bigger, and the best way you can do that is to just tell a friend, like, comment, subscribe, get the word out, all that good stuff. If you enjoy these conversations, it's just a small way to give back and something I don't take lightly. I appreciate everyone's time and attention. Last thing, if you want to keep the podcast ad-free and show some love, I set up a website apart from BedroomBeethovens.com which you can find at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Bedroom Beethoven's, where you can give a few bucks to gain early access to podcast episodes and a few other perks. There's merch and stickers and we can chat and all that good stuff. It's just a small community over there that I'm proud to be a part of. And as we set off into the new year, I just want to remind everyone that you're amazing, you're needed, and appreciated. Let's make 2023 a good one. Without further ado, here is my conversation with ID Labs own Taylor Gang's own Dan. Hey, Dan. 
how do your kids react to someone like you as their dad, like who's attending Grammy Awards with their mom or, you know, having Ariana Grande in the studio or Mac Miller stopping by the house on Christmas morning and a thousand other unique situations like that? <laughs> I'm still dad. I'm still I'm still only half cool uh, most days. Um, I don't think they really, you know, had a full appreciation of um you know, the people I was working with or the things I was doing until, you know, more recent years. So my oldest is 19 now, my youngest is 17. I don't, I think that growing up, it was just sort of, you know, a, a normal thing um, that I did what I did and, and they didn't think much about it. And um, as they got older, they, uh, they were like, hey, dad, I, you know, you know, saw this YouTube video that you did years ago that you know has all these views and i didn't know that you did this song with this person and you know that kind of stuff so that's pretty cool and and they they both got great music taste so i'm, I'm really proud of that yeah people, people always talk about like the producer artist relationship but like you know, sometimes I think about like I wonder what I wonder what Timbaland means to Genuine's kids. You know, like what kind of relationship do they have? <laughs> it's it's unique, you know. Yeah, no, it definitely is. Um, I mean, it's cool. It's it's. I feel like you know, I've, I've managed to somehow build a legacy that they can look at and say, you know, hey, my dad did all this this stuff that. Uh, you know, still around and still there's, there's people that, you know, listen to it and are maybe inspired by it and, and that sort of thing. So it's nice to see them, uh, really, you know, come into some appreciation for, for that, or just understanding of, of, you know, how sort of unlikely it was for that to happen, you know, particularly coming out of Pittsburgh. Yeah, it's interesting you touched on that. Like, so, you know, both your sons are like college age and it costs, you know, I don't know, $45,000 to go to Berkeley College uh, as an undergrad per year. And if you stay at the dorms, oh, that's another $25,000. Right. Or you can be like Edan and read manuals and tinker around <laughs> and connect the dots and do it yourself, you know? Right. So, you know, you've had you've had dumb luck, you've gained the system. And of course, with tenacity and talent, you've arrived at the point where even if you went to college now, it probably wouldn't even, it wouldn't do much in your career. So if your kids look at that, at that example and say, nah, dad, I'm not trying to waste 60 grand a year on college. I mean, you didn't and look at you, you know, what are your expectations and feelings about that? Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting question uh, that I feel like we're grappling with now. My oldest is going to school for physician's assistant and I'm really happy that he's, you know, going into just such like an in-demand field. But, you know, he's also started tinkering around with, with making beats. And, you know, he's, he's just like a huge fan of music and, and completely shares my music taste almost exactly. You know, I would never discourage either one of them from pursuing anything that they love. Um, I mean, if nothing else, that's, that's what, you know, this has afforded me and us as a family is, is, you know, the ability to let them explore things that interest them and that they might be passionate about. But at the same time, I know, you know, how incredibly lucky I've been in this business. And, and I think the, 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 the one thing that always pops out at me when I, when I think about this is that if I was being real with them and they, and they really wanted to get into music, you know, my first piece of advice would have to be, you got to get out of Pittsburgh, you know, and, and you can't expect what happened for me, you know, to, to be a, a likely scenario to happen for you or anyone else, because it is really unlikely at the end of the day. And, you know, I just wouldn't want to see them move. So, you know, as far as school versus not, um, it obviously just depends, you know, what you're trying to do. And, and, you know, for me, it just didn't, it didn't click. Um, I was just, you know, too passionate about music and too into what I was doing outside of school. I mean, I went to college for a little while, but I just never felt like, you know, I was there for the right reasons. And I never felt like I was really taking it 
you know, as seriously as I should have, because I was just, I was so distracted by music, you know, and it was just like always my focus. So it is hard to say to them like, yeah, you know, I know school's hard, but it's worth it. And, and, you know, when they can definitely look at me and say, you know, Hey, look at all the stuff you did without school, but you know, it just depends what you want to do. And obviously if you want to get into the medical field, you got to go to school. If you know, you want to do something in the entertainment business, you don't necessarily have to go to school, but you have to accept the fact that, you know, your schooling might be, you know, more fraught and more difficult than actual school. And it's anybody's guess what the right path is because, you know, it's more so about the people you meet and the situations that you fall into and and just your overall sort of work ethic and attitude towards what you're doing that are more important um, when you're, you know, following a career path that that doesn't have to entail some sort of formal training. But all those options are are open for them. I think they've probably heard me complain about the music business so much that, um, you know, even if they wanted to get into it, they might be afraid to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> but I've but I've tried to leave the door open, and and I've always said to them, "Hey, you know, do what interests you first. Don't get into something because you feel like it's going to be." cool or because it's going to be lucrative or you know whatever make it something that you're passionate about and something that genuinely interests you because i think that's the only way you know to really get to a point in life where you're content and satisfied with with what you do is you know if it's if it's something that's that's infinitely interesting to you then you know it's always going to be and and you can always get something out of it, you know, as opposed to just a paycheck. So, I mean, looking back at this journey, like how does, how does that start with like a neighborhood babysitter? You know, how does, how does that experience ultimately lead to, I don't know, 30 years later, now we're listening to Juicy J music. Yeah. Wow. You, you, you definitely did some research. Uh, if you know about the babysitter, that was, yeah, there was, there was a, a lady across the street that was our friend's grandmother and you know my both my parents worked so we would stay with her most days and she was just a self-taught pianist and you know she would play church songs christmas songs you know she didn't um i don't think she read music but she would just sit down at the piano and and play and i would just sit on the bench next to her and and watch her and it just I think really early on, I mean, it was probably, you know, five, six years old or something like that watching this. And, and I just thought it was the most amazing thing in the world that someone could, you know, sit at this, this box and, and make these sounds and, you know, play these songs just, you know, from memory and by, by ear, um, you know, no sheet music in front of them. And, uh, yeah, I think that, that definitely put an early seed into my brain that, you know, this is, this is something that I really enjoy or, or, you know, something that I'm, I'm really into. Yeah. I, uh, I, I'm being fascinated with kind of the, the origins of how people get that seed of creativity and then kind of where they end up. Um, like Masai Turner has, a, has a master's degree and works in education now. And then there's a uh, Chad Glick, who used to manage, you know, Wiz. And then as time went on, I, I see that he shows up less and less in music and now he has a, a dog care facility. Right. You know what I mean? And it's just like, where, where the people of your past have pivoted and transitioned out of music, how are you able to stay in it and become even bigger and more demand in your field? I'm just persistent. You know, like if, if, if it's something that I want to do, if it's something that interests me or, you know, something I want to accomplish, I'm just, I've never been afraid of the work, you know? Um, and not to say that any of those guys were, but I, I spent a lot of time, you know, just burying myself in, in piles of records and, um, you know, sit in front of a, of an NPC. And that was really all I did. And I didn't, you know, I didn't go out. Like I didn't do a lot outside of, of my basement. You know, I just, was obsessed i think those guys had other interests 
you know, outside of, of the basement studio and, and, you know, life just took them in, in other directions, but I just always had this like supreme focus. I mean, Masai was definitely sort of the leader of, um, our little group, you know, and, and he was for sure determined, um, and, you know, he probably was, was the first person that really like showed me how motivated you can really be, you know, especially with this music shit, just watching his example of like, you know, we're going to do this no matter what. And, and in any way possible, you know, we're going to try to stick our foot in the door. It was sort of like, okay, like, you know, this is how you do it. Like you just you look for you know every opening you can and you and you try to be as good as you can and and when the group fell apart you know i think that it just so happened that i was sort of the only person that that had you know a skill that that could keep me in music you know and make me a living um, without having to sort of quote unquote make it, you know, which was just, I had started recording us, you know, I was, I was already recording other people in the city, you know, just, just having learned trial by fire with, with us as a group. Um, so when, when we broke up, you know, it just was sort of already in motion with the studio. Um, and that wasn't something that those guys you know, knew how to do or were necessarily into. Uh, so they just sort of went their, their separate way, ways and ended up where they ended up. And, and I just kept going. The world population changing their frequency modulation. Tune in 247 on any and all occasion. The flow style highly requested. Heavy rotation, ready for station. We bringing it live to every location. The world population changing their frequency modulation. That, that goal where you've only ever wanted to do with music was just sit in a room all day, make it, and earn a living. Is that goal ever achieved? Like, perhaps once you're able to make a living from music, do you move the goalpost and say, okay, well, now I'm going to buy a house for my mom. Okay, now if I can put my kids through college. Okay, now if I can win five Grammys. You know, or is that the core philosophy that, that is important to keep? I mean, it'd, it'd be disingenuous to say that money, you know, hasn't been part of my thinking my musical journey started, you know, maybe when I was 16 and started playing guitar, but my musical career really, to me, didn't start uh, until I opened the studio, you know, and, and that didn't happen until my late 20s. And, you know, I had a kid on the way and that was such a big weight on me that, you know, at the time it definitely was at the forefront was like, you know, all right, I got to make a living but I got to do this because this is what I do. Money was definitely the motivator in terms of like, you know, this is what I want to do. Like I want to sit in a room and make music all day and whatever allows me to do that and support my family at the same time. You know, that's how I'm going to approach this, you know, which is what led me to, to recording, you know, a, 50 different people every week and, and, you know, spending nights in the studio doing music. I didn't necessarily enjoy, but to me, I was still doing music. I was still following my path, but I was making a living, you know, the best way that I knew how to. Well, so you, you say that you're like, you're playing guitar at 16 and I know you're making beats on the side, but let's say, your friends are like, hey, your, your beats suck. Would you have been like, well, my dreams of being like a Costello or a Jeff Beck or a Hendrix, let's see how far this guitar can take me. Maybe you would have excelled in a punk band. Who knows? But was it like the mm -hmm. acceptance of your peers and maybe the rap influence of Pittsburgh that pulled you towards rap? Or how did that go? How did you have that sway in that direction? I don't I don't know. And, and actually, that's that's something I always wonder because, you know, I went to this like tiny little Catholic school growing up definitely wasn't a lot of people listening to rap probably just you know discovered it via mtv like everyone else but it's at some point in like seventh grade maybe 
it like popped onto my radar and I just, you know, became like obsessed with it. I mean, to the point where I remember in eighth grade, somebody's parents had like a video camera that we set up in the backyard and I, out of cardboard and masking tape, I built these, these boxes that look like turntables and I cut a piece of wood into a circle and put a chain on it and drew the public enemy symbol, you know, the guy in the, in the crosshairs and hung it around my neck and, and convinced some friends of mine, you know, to like, let's make this video, uh, to this public enemy song, you know, and I'm going to be Terminator X and you guys can be, you know, Flav and Chuck D. And I wish that tape still existed. You know, I just was that obsessed with it. And then I had a paper route at the time. So, you know, I would just take all my paper money and, and buy tapes, you know, whenever I could. And, um, that was sort of my thing, you know, up until 16, I, I, I discovered Hendrix basically. Um, and that sort of pulled me right out of hip hop, you know, and I just was, just became so obsessed with Jimmy and, guitar and so i spent the next you know three four years just like totally into that um sort of fell away from hip-hop never hated it or anything i just like kind of stopped following it because i got you know so into guitar and then at some point probably around the time like wu-tang came out i started you know hearing things that were like just different, you know, from what I had, I had heard before in rap and, and it just sort of like pulled me back in. Um, and that was, you know, when I started like messing around with, I, I, you know, somehow came up on a, on a little like uh, drum machine, like this boss drum machine. I don't even remember exactly how I got it, but you know, it was just like a cheap little thing. And, there was a music store near me that would rent gear. So they rented cassette four tracks for like 25 bucks a month or 50 bucks a month or something like that. So I went and rented one, you know, just so I could like lay this drum pattern down and then, you know, start playing things on top of it. And at the time, like I didn't really have, I didn't have any way to, you know, sample anything. So I wasn't, I wasn't sampling. The only thing I could do was, you know, play stuff over these, um, drum beats I was making on this drum machine. So that was what I did, you know, for like a couple of years. And, and someone gave me like their, you know, little console piano, digital home piano thing. And I added that to the mix. So I was just doing stuff that way. So I came into hip hop, you know, just in this weird way. And it's, you know, it's funny cause I, I really, you know, I really study like my favorite producers, you know, the, the premieres and, and Pete rocks and like people from, you know, the late eighties, early nineties era. And the way all those guys got into it was, you know, the parents record collection and, and DJing. Um, my entry point was just so different and probably because of, you know, where I grew up and um, the kids that I grew up around. And I always felt like I was the person, you know, feeding hip hop to people. Um, whereas it wasn't, you know, uh, most of the kids that I knew weren't as into it at first until I was like, oh man, you got to check out this Run DMC song and, you know, or whatever. Um, so yeah, it was just like a totally different entry point for me, but that was sort of how it went. Yeah. Cause in your area, you're probably getting, you know, employee discounts at pianos and stuff or, you know, discounted guitars or something. Yeah. That was much later. I mean, you know, at some point. You know, I had like a hundred jobs, you know, from KFC to the Olive Garden, whatever, you know, all these places. But, you know, I eventually got this job at um, pianos and stuff, the music store near me. And um, that was a big come up. I mean, I basically was just working for gear. It paid terribly, but it was... You know, I'd take my paycheck and I'd I'd set, you know, exactly what I needed aside for, for living expenses. And I'd pretty much just hand the rest back to the owner. Um, and he would sell me gear like, you know, a dealer costs. So I was, I would get it fairly cheap, you know, but it was still 
expensive and um i just started you know amassing as as much as i could which didn't amount to much but it was eventually like a mic preamp and a microphone and an mpc you know and a little mixer and some speakers um by that point i was you know i was already both feet into beats but yeah that was that was a huge come up for me i still have some of that gear i still use some of that gear (laughs) yeah um (laughs) you, you mentioned um I guess Wu-Tang, I, I guess since that was like such a good entry point, it's no wonder. Cause I think you had a uh, only built for Cuban links on the walls of the, of the first iteration of ID lab. So that, I guess that explains that. Yeah, definitely. Um, although I, you know, I, I wouldn't say that like they were the, the top thing for me. I think it was just that era where things started getting a little grittier again, you know, just the rawness of what they were doing. You know, especially because like I I had been into rock for a while, you know, and I'd really gone into like classic rock and alternative rock and stuff. And I, I needed, you know, something edgier. Um, and and the stuff that those guys were doing and other guys were doing, you know, it, it gave me that that energy. and was just sort of a way for me to get back to, to hip hop. Well, I think a good way to to work seamlessly on other genres is to be a mixer, which is, which is who you are. Um, did you, I, I remember, I think on, on Twitter, you might've asked Alchemist who his, his mixer was. I think it was on a Boldy James or a Freddie Gibbs record. I think one of their songs piqued your interest. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, no, it was actually, um, a record he did with Schoolboy Q. Schoolboy Q. Yeah. And I think yeah. it was, uh, Eddie Sancho, I think that did yep. that. And, um, the thing about Eddie Sancho that I, I noticed is that he will mix for Nas, Jay-Z, Snoop Dogg, Eminem, which is fantastic, mm-hmm. but he's also mixing for Janet Jackson and Limp Biscuit. you know, as a mixer, yeah. like you have an ear for rock, you have an ear for hip hop to be able to mix a rock album and R and B album and hip hop albums. Is that hard to do? It's a definite, it's definitely a different mindset you know going into it because you're you're looking for different things to to poke out of the record you know and and i mean i I don't mix a whole ton of rock records but you know when i do it's it's obviously less emphasis on drums and lead vocal whereas you know when i'm mixing a hip-hop record it's like that's the things that always you know are in front i mean these days it's 808 a lot two in front but i you know I, I think just as like a fan of music you know and as a mixer you're just when you're you know pulling up raw tracks to mix and you're listening to the demo you know as a guide um you're just hearing music you know and if you appreciate music then you know your mind is telling you how you want it to hear and you start moving in that direction you know both consciously and unconsciously it's not totally different, I guess, in terms of, you know, I just want it to sound right and I just want it to sound pleasing, you know, to the ear sonically, but tell the story, you know, all music is sort of the same in that way, but yeah, definitely, you know, from a technical standpoint, you make some different moves, you know, depending on the genre and, and mostly it just comes down to balances, you know, like what's in front and how in front is it you know as opposed to other elements and that'll vary from genre to genre but again it's all feel i mean i don't i don't do a lot of referencing or anything you just listen to it and it'll it'll tell you what to do if you're if you're paying attention like right now if if paramore said edan please mix our new record would that be something you'd be excited Mm about oh hell yeah i love them i don't know if, if i'd be the guy but um i'd sure enjoy trying you know their records sound amazing too that's the thing like i'm I'm completely naive when it comes to these kind of things but i know every time that rick mm-hmm. rubin mixes a rock album like slipknot or metallica yeah. it's shit man it's so harsh right. and the mastering is always like really flat and i just like this dude is like hailed as a guru right. but when it comes to rock music he's not good at mixing rock i don't know yeah well he's not actually i mean he's, he doesn't actually mix i mean he has engineers that he works with um, but he definitely steers stuff in, in that direction. I mean, I think Rick's thing is, you know, he's just got this, this kind of stripped down, um, everything in your face sort of approach. And I really enjoy his records, you know, rock and otherwise, 
but there's definitely some that, that get criticized. I mean, I, I think most of those, you know, were caught up in the early, you know, or mid two thousands sort of, um, well, I guess early two thousands, it started like the loudness wars and, you know, once CDs became popular and everyone's goal became, you know, make it louder than the next record. Um, you know, a lot of his seminal stuff came out in that era and I mean, especially the rock stuff. So I think part of it was just sort of like you had to have a certain level of volume. And when you're going for that level of volume, you know, if your mix is already <clears throat> centered in the mid range and focused on vocals and drums and, and there's already a, an inherent dryness to it um, and lack of ambience, then I think that's what you end up with, you know, when all of those things combined is, you know, sort of an abrasive record that's, that's not, you know, not sort of, um, padded around it by ambience and reverb and, you know, this wash of instruments. Um, Rick's thing to me is like, everything is very intentional and in focus, but, you know, when you take a mix like that and try to make it as loud as possible, then yeah, I think things can start getting harsh as, as well as happening. It's funny you say that, like I, you say it's intentional. So I guess that, I guess that's just his style, but maybe there is also some self-awareness. Like you under you, what you just said, you understand what is good and what is bad. Maybe that's what makes Dave Pensato or Tony Maserati or yourself yeah, um, self-aware of stuff like that. I mean, I, I think those guys definitely come from a different perspective you know like they're doing a lot of pop r&b records um where this you know sort of lushness is the goal and that's probably inherent to their sound as well you know just as as who they are and how they hear music you know i think that's just naturally the the direction guys like that go in and again with you know with rick it's like the thing is is always like at least you know from what i hear or notice about his productions is you know, there's just not a lot of like filler. You're not going to hear a Rick Rubin track or a track that Rick Rubin produced that's got, um, you know, stacks and stacks of, of background vocals and, you know, lush pads happening everywhere and stuff. And, and which would be the kind of stuff that maybe, you know, Dave Pensato is, is getting or, you know, or Tony Maserati or whoever it might be. You know, with Rick, I, I always feel like, you know, his goal is just to strip away everything that's not important to the record and to, to the song. Not to say that, you know, vocal stacks and things aren't important, but it's, again, sort of genre-specific because if you're mixing R&B records in the 2000s, you know, there's going to be 60 tracks of doubled, tripled, quadrupled vocals everywhere. So you got you got to approach that differently. But you made you made a beat like you know the race for Wiz Khalifa mm -hmm. where you you completed that beat on the spot. So there wasn't a lot of yeah. stripping away, adding stuff like I, you know you're an artist, so you're okay. This beat is finished, and it ends up being an instant classic. Is that a rare occurrence? Do you usually like let it sit and then you go back? Um. Yeah. You know what? I almost always even with the race. I mean, there was all of those records on, on rolling papers. I mean, there was the initial putting it together. Um, and then there was, you know, a period after that where, you know, I would arrange things a little bit better and, you know, maybe add a melody here or something, you know, to fill certain parts. I definitely don't work fast. Um, it bugs me out, you know, when I see young kids and how fast they are able to work. Like, I don't think my brain works that way it's like i really need to uh stew on things a little bit and and you know just sort of take my time with things and and gain different perspectives before i'm like okay i, I think this is done you know which isn't all i mean occasionally like it'll just sort of happen you know i mean i think like i don't know frick park market is one like a lot of stuff with mac I mean, there's been, there's been both things have, have gone on, like, um, been plenty of records that we, you know, made on the spot, but then continued to add to for weeks or months. But there's a couple, I think party on fifth Ave, maybe, eh, no, I think I added 
some of the stuff for the bridge later on. I mean, you know, regardless of any of that, it's, you know, it's still the best way to work as far as I'm concerned, like getting in a room with somebody and creating something from scratch. You just, you end up with something more special a lot of times than if, you know, you're sort of in, in separate places and, and maybe on different wavelengths and you're sending stuff back and forth or whatever. But it's harder to do now because really, you know, the way that technology has grown in in the creation of music, it's it's led to a place where, you know, things are fast. It's it's easy to get to a certain point. I mean, in seconds, you know, you can have something happening beat wise. And I think that's led to a lack of patience, you know, with, with artists and even producers themselves, um, where if something's not happening immediately, it's like, you know, on to the next, I can sit with a beat up, you know, half the day and just be listening to it and thinking of parts and, you know, changing things in the arrangement or changing a drum sound or whatever. That's a more comfortable way for me to work. And it's also because I enjoy that part that process that, you know, that, that part of things like just the energy of, of creating something new. Um, that's the best part for me. So I'm, I'm usually not in a hurry, you know, to, to call it finished. And a lot of times just have to stop myself and say, okay, especially in recent years, you know, because I, I feel like back then, like, you know, in those days, like when I made the race, <clears throat> you know, I, I, I don't know if I'd make a beat that's so, you know, full of layers and parts now, because I, you know, to my sort of current mind and ear, it feels a little crowded, you know, and, um, it worked for the vibe, but even that record, like I can listen to and be like, eh, I didn't probably didn't need that extra you know synth pad there like it really just you know is maybe obscuring like something else going on that was cool Well, let me ask you from like a from a human nature perspective, maybe ego. Like, I don't know if this is bittersweet for you, but it was like you did this plane or the race. But from a top 40 radio level, that wasn't the song that put him on the map. It was Black and Yellow, which was a song you didn't produce. So for that to be the catalyst to get him on mainstream, like I would have liked that to have been like the guy that was there from the very beginning, like that, that journey. Was that like kind of a bittersweet? Like, oh, I really wish... I would have did that or he picked my song. Sure. I mean, you know, you always want to be the guy that, that, you know, was the hero and made like, you know, the record. Um, but I've, I've come to sort of like accept and be totally cool with the fact that like, I'm not a hit maker, you know, like if you want to hit record, at least in that era, you know, you're going to call Stargate you're going to call Benny Blanco or Jim Johnson or whoever. I'm the guy that, you know, is going to make, or so it ended up, the guy that's going to make like what might be the hardcore fans favorite track from the album, you know, but not necessarily the radio song. I've always had this weird adversity to like, you know, very popular music. And, and a lot of it is just like the music nerd in me. Um, I love discovering music, you know, and I love discovering music that is, you know, obscure or people haven't heard or I haven't, you know, been aware of. I mean, music in general to me is, is, you know, it is discovery, like the creation of music and, you know, discovering something in yourself um, or just, you know, discovering a way to put something together. And that carries to, you know, the way I listen to music. And I don't really think in terms of like, this is going to be something that a hundred million people like, you know, I try to think in terms of like, this is, 
unique or different and this isn't something I've done before or whatever. So, yeah, I mean, you know, you always want to be that guy, but you ultimately just have to be, you know, who you are. And I've, I've come to accept the fact that, you know, particularly with Wiz, um, you know, I'm not going to be the singles guy. Like there's other people that are just going to be better at making singles for what, works for him but he's like so on the race he's he's also like you know it's it's let's say it's not like this isn't going to be the single but i mean he's coming out of his comfort zone and he's singing on the record mm-hmm. does that is that attributed to you do you have to pull right. that element out of him because you know you want to you want music to be self-discovering like oh i didn't know wiz could sing and he's doing it more on on your tracks he was already doing a lot of that you know to me like when we were doing like you know flight school or star power or like you know these really old mixtapes like you know there was a ton of singing on those even prince of the city too you know what i mean like um something like who i am that that sledgeron did you know he's singing the whole track so like i knew that that was you know part of him already you know i I don't think that we sat down with the intention of like hey let's make this like you know sort of uh you know spacey um, melodic thing. It was just like, that's what we were feeling, you know? And I've always tended to, to be like a little bit more melodic with beats, you know, and less about like, you know, less about raw energy, um, you know, or, or even catchy melodies necessarily. And, and, you know, more about something that like envelopes you a bit, you know, and just as like a vibey sort of feel to it. Um, so I think that was just like a natural thing, you know, I mean, I definitely, you know, except for the very, very early days of working with Wiz, like, you know, I never really tried to steer him in a particular direction. I guess, you, you know, if you're, if you're all about ego, that, would be a nightmare situation in the studio, but I guess you're able to be more trusting and let Wiz uh, have autonomy and do the thing that he wants to do. And then when it comes out, it ends up being a hit because you trust right. the process. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 you know, I honestly don't feel like I've ever had much of an ego with, in, in terms of being a producer and, and my accomplishments or, you know, how I felt um, about myself. Like I've just always felt like a student, you know, of, of the music, and I've always felt like I'm, you know, even now still trying to get to the place where, you know, I can do exactly what I'm hearing in my head. But with Wiz, you know, we started working together so early in his, um, you know, his journey. Like, you know, he was 16. Um, I had the studio and, and you know, it had sort of had its name already in the, in the city. And, and I think that he came into the situation looking up to me, um, just as like a, a mentor sort of, you know, at least when we, when we made the decision to start working together. So there was that trust, you know, sort of built in that, you know, well, this guy's got this studio and he's, you know, he's doing all this stuff. So he must know, what he's talking about, you know, um, and I probably didn't, but they, you know, he gave me that, that sort of trust. And then, you know, I think as the years went on, you know, especially by the time we got to cushion OJ, you know, he was just finding his voice and I didn't know what his voice was at the time. You know, we had done a lot of projects already together at that point. You know, there was a lot of like, at least for me, you know, maybe not for him, but for me, there was a lot of frustration, you know, with things not turning out the way that we would hope, you know, with Warner Brothers and just, you know, in general. So, you know, I think when Kush and OJ came around, I was like kind of fighting my own nature and was feeling like, nah, man, like, you know, we need to make some records that are really going to hit, you know, commercially, like that you know, that have a, a wider appeal to them. And I felt like Kush and Orange Juice was this really unique thing. And it, and it took, you know, halfway through that project to really like grasp it, you know, to, 
to hear all these songs that he had made, you know, once, once it started getting to a certain point, it was like the light bulb, you know, sort of went off and was like, yo, he's, he's creating his own lane. We don't need to put ourselves in, in the same place as everyone else. Like he's making his sound now and all the other stuff before that, you know, was just sort of like training to get to this point. And, you know, it's hard for me to understand that at first because it was like, you know, it's just another day in the studio. We're just working on another song. Um, so I didn't see the shift, you know, and, and until it had already started happening and, you know, there was enough of that body of work together that it could click in my mind as like, oh, this now, now he is on his sound. You know, this is who he is as an artist and as a rapper. Everything else was, you know, was him just trying on different coats, you know, to see what looked good. And this is the one where he finally found, you know, the the coat that fit him best. Um, and then once I realized that, it was like, okay, you know, this is something special. Uh, but that was me trusting him. Not that he would have cared if I did or not, but... <laughs> But in that moment, my internal conversation was like, he's got this, you know, like I got to trust his vision with this because I didn't see this, you know, like I didn't see that this was the way that uh, he needed to go and he figured it out. Um, so I just gave into it at that point and was like, you know, this is it. So you find a lot of success and Wiz goes to L.A. And I hope I'm not taking your quote out of context, but you said you felt bored and deflated. How do you, how do you get your mojo back in that in that scenario? I think I felt I mean pre rolling papers, you know, I I just felt deflated in the way that I felt like all right, you know, I just was here to help lay the groundwork and you know, now this is going to be a thing without me. I didn't have any real reason to feel that way other than like, you know, he just wasn't around anymore because you know, he had gotten momentum and he was you know, doing shows and he was out of town. Um, so I just felt like, you know, maybe this is just going to be a thing that just sort of goes on without me. And that'll be my story is like, I was there to help, you know, build it somewhat. And so the boredom was just, you know, not, not having any particular artist or project at the time that I was like, you know, fully invested with, Cause I, you know, I don't always necessarily enjoy like just sitting around making beats just for the sake of it. You know, like it's, it's much more rewarding to be making beats and, and have an artist next to you and have the instant gratification of writing a song together. So, you know, it, that didn't change until, um, you know, Wiz made it very clear that, you know, he wanted me and, Germ and Sledger and, and and everybody, you know, that had worked with him in Pittsburgh to be a part of things, which he did. You know? Well, before we wrap up, do you do you mind if I ask you a few questions pertaining to Mac Miller? No, of course not. His last album was completed by John Bryan, who you've said in the past that when working with Mac Miller, you know there's no finished project in the archives that you knew he was cool with. And his family said, Nope, it's okay. You have the green light to finish this project. Mac didn't. So I guess, you know, this might be just a long winded way to say, are you happy with circles being the final chapter of his legacy or would you have preferred that nothing came out? Uh, no, I absolutely am. You know, I love that record and I'm glad it came out. And I think that the only person on the planet that could have finished it in a way that Mac would be proud was John Bryan. You know, he did things on that record that, I feel sure Mac would have appreciated that. I know that I wasn't capable of doing, there was no better person. And, and, you know, a lot of those were started with John. So it just made sense, um, to continue with him. But I think that it was important. You know, I know that, you know, Mac was, was really excited about those records when he was making them, you know, making the demos. And, you know, he definitely felt like, you know, Hey, this is going to be my next chapter. You know, I might go back to just straight rapping 
I might whatever, but you know, this very next chapter, this is going to be me exploring this more songwriter, singer songwriter, sort of like, you know, something beyond hip hop idea. Um, I think that it would have been really important for him to see that released, you know, and, and to see people appreciate that side of him. And, and yeah, again, like, I don't think that there was anyone better than, than John. I mean, you got to keep in mind too, like, you know, Mac was such a big fan of John and like, you know, the eternal sunshine soundtrack was like one of his favorite pieces of music. And, you know, he had such appreciation for what that guy did. Um, and does as a musician and as a producer and composer. So, you know, I think all the way around, it was, it was the right call and I'm glad it, you know, exists in the world. Well, I actually have a, I have a Mac Miller story for you. I was the art director at the formula one racetrack out in Texas at um, circuit of the Americas from 2012 to 2015. And Wiz Khalifa would always play at the 360 amphitheater out there with like a uh, fallout boy. I think it was like the boys of summer tour and stuff. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> as the track gained popularity, we actually yeah. won the bid for the X games. And this was the summer of 14 It was nine years ago. And the headlining was um, Kanye West um, and the flaming lips. And the second billing was Gary, Gary Clark jr. And slightly stupid. And then the third billing all the way at the bottom was Mac Miller. And I remember designing the flyer. Like, you know, I know who Mac Miller is. I didn't really listen to watching movies with the sound off, but I did love Best Day Ever mixtape a whole lot. So going into the event, I didn't pay any mind yeah. because, you know, it it was just it was all about Kanye West, Kanye West. And let me tell right. you, he was cuckoo then right. too. He 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 wouldn't allow his head on any of the um publicity shots. He wore like a, a chain link helmet and he wouldn't let anyone see his face. But that's that's another story. But let me tell you. Uh, the day of, everyone went bonkers for Mac Miller. I was like, oh, there is a shift in energy in this whole place. I thought everybody was going to go cuckoo for Kanye. Right. But Mac gave the best performance. And I can honestly say the crowd went the craziest for him. And this was 14. This was nine years ago. Yeah, man. Like, like, like you know, watching Wiz's rise to fame, you know, was this this slow burn you know, where we, we toiled and toiled for years and then, you know, things slowly, you know, you'd get to this level and then you, you know, where there's people coming to the shows and you get to this level where it's like, Oh, we popped up on the iTunes chart, you know, with Mac, it was like, you know, thing, it just exploded, you know, from almost the very start. And it felt like overnight, you know, everything just happened all at once and it was really wild to just like you know to have been through the situation with Wiz and to to watch him you know sort of like just fight his way to this place and then with Mac for it to just like happen so quickly and effortlessly it felt like that was just a really wild experience um so yeah and and his shows are legendary. Do you think you have it in you to take like another Jermaine Dupree bow wow situation? Like take a, take a 15, 16 year old and build them up to, do you have that in you anymore? Or is that just man, like lightning in a bottle hit a couple times and I think it's over. I never expect it. You know what I'm saying? Like I, you know, for it to have happened twice for me already is pretty crazy. Um, so it would be, uh, you know, really out of this world for it to happen again. But I would definitely put myself in the position if the right artist, you know, came my way. And, and a lot of it for me is just like, you know, how I relate to a person and, and how able we are to work together um, in that way. Because everything's so different now, you know, like people can really sort of like get a buzz going completely a hundred percent by themselves. Um, and, and I think that that's sort of pushed to people like that's the way to do it. Um, so I, you know, you don't see a lot of artists like just sort of like setting up shop with a particular producer, you know, even early on just doesn't seem to be the way things happen now. 
I'm sure there's, there's notable exceptions, but, um, but definitely, you know, that's something I would, I would love to do. Uh, if it was, you know, if the right person came into view, that was like making music that really spoke to me and they were somebody that I could, you know, be in a room with and, and enjoy their company, then, you know, hundred percent, I would, I would jump into the situation and, and put everything I had into it. But, you know, it's not like I'm out there necessarily actively looking. I'm always sort of paying attention, but you know, I'm not really like searching for it yeah i think i think that has to be organic or it's not going to work you definitely can't force that yeah it does i mean you know like mac and Wiz. like i mean it's just two kids that that literally just walked into the studio one day you know with no expectations whatsoever so you know i think that's that is how those situations come about you know they just they just sort of happen because the universe allowed them to happen um and you can't really like force them and I, and I felt myself forcing it a little bit, you know, maybe, I don't know, five, six years ago or something. It was like, I felt like I want to find another artist, you know, and, and I would sort of go on these like quests, you know, locally and via the internet, whatever. And those things just never seemed to work out, you know, maybe I just wasn't finding the right people. Maybe it just wasn't, you know, a genuine enough scenario in terms of like it just sort of happening in a certain way and and you know it was me trying to to not necessarily recreate what happened with mac and Wiz, but you know recreate that that sort of relationship and i think i just realized at some point like you know what if it happens again it happens again but you know, maybe it's not even meant to, <laughs> so maybe it won't, and that's okay. Too. Yeah, there's. I don't. I don't know if you know MTV giving you E Dance making the band would 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 pan out. You know. Yeah, I don't. I don't know that. I don't know that it would either. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be fun to try, though. I would definitely try, but uh, I'm not well, sure what happened. Well, your your solo work came out uh, roughly about 18 months ago, and I, yeah. I'm sure you're staying busy. Um, it's 2023, man. What what can people expect from you? I, I want to give you the floor to tell people anything you want. Um, well, I got a new album, instrumental album, um, that I've been sitting on for a little while um, that will hopefully, hopefully come out uh, relatively soon, but I have no release date yet. Similar in vibe to the last one but I feel like I took some of the concepts earlier with that, with the album I put out, you know, just sort of this collection of tracks that I would make them and feel like, Hey, ain't nobody going to rap on this and put it aside, you know? And, and when I came up with the idea of like, Hey, why don't I just do an instrumental album just for, for me, you know, for no other reason than I just want to finish these tracks and put it out. You know, that was the stuff I was drawing from. Um, whereas the new one, it was a little bit more intent in, in, in so far as I would start a beat, you know, or start a track and I would feel like, oh, this is something for me. You know, let me, let me take it to that place where I'm not thinking about leaving room for a vocalist. I would just keep going with it. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. Other than that, you know, I'm just mixing records for any and everybody that I can. And um, still in Pittsburgh, keeping the studio going and, and trying to continue to, to build it into, you know, just a great place to be for local artists. And um, yeah, that's it. Well, Eden, I, I didn't want to tell you this beforehand because I, I wanted to uh, I didn't want to like temper expectations. But to me, you're you're a top 15 producer of all time. If I had to make a list <laughs> Thanks, on man. a good day, that's... you might even crack my top 10. That's uh, that means a lot, man. It really does. Some of the beats you made, they're uh, they're definitely classic. So this was a this was a real treat for me. And I also want to thank Will and Michelle for allowing me to do this. You have a lot of good people surrounding you, and uh, I'm very, they're the best. Yeah, and I get to talk to Big Germ next week, so I'm I'm in good company, man. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm very appreciative of the of the time uh, that you let me borrow from you today. So no, thanks so much, man. I appreciate you doing it. Happy birthday, Mac Miller. Happy 20th anniversary to ID labs. If, if my timeline's correct, I think we're celebrating 20 years. So we are, man, it's, uh, it's coming up this, this spring. So with any luck, I'll get, I'll get my album out by then, but we'll see. (laughs) All right. Appreciate you, man. Thank you. (laughs) Hey, thank you, man. Take care.